right, as always, we're going to do a little bit of review. What are the three main themes in the book of Revelation? First is two cities. What are they? Right, and old Jerusalem is the Pharisees and the Sadducees that killed Jesus. The new Jerusalem is the new covenant church. The second theme is two beasts. What is that? Yeah, the sea beast and the land beast. The sea beast stands for Rome, and the land beast stands for? Apostate Israel, good. And the third kingdom is as a kingdom. The kingdom is going to be established by Jesus, that Jesus is going to rule, and we're going to rule and reign with him. All right, so I'm going to start back at the last verse of Revelation 8, because I know most of you missed that. We did this Wednesday night. Then I, John, looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the land, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, what are these three woes? Well, the three woes are the three last trumpets. Well, what are the seven trumpets? They are in the seventh seal. So another quick review here. We got seven seals. The first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, remember? The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale green horse. Basically, Jesus giving war, famine, and death to the land of Israel. Then the fifth seal is the souls crying for vengeance before the altar. The sixth seal is the decreation rhetoric, the sun turning black, the moon turning to blood, and the stars falling to the sky. Then the seventh seal is what? The seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. We did the first four trumpets last Wednesday. I'm not going to review them right now. And now we're on the last three trumpets. And so woe one is trumpet number Five, and woe two is trumpet number six, and woe three is trumpet number seven. When we get to seven, what's the seventh trumpet going to be? Seven bowls of judgment. All right, that's the structure. Now, chapter nine is about two armies flooding into Israel to overwhelm the land of Israel. The first army is an army of demons. That's trumpet number five. Trumpet number six is going to be an army of Romans coming in to wipe out the Israelites in So let's start now with Revelation 9-1. Then the fifth angel sounded. Thank you, Steve. And I saw a star. (laughs) And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, to the land, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now the star, that stands for the devil. We're going to look at somebody falling from heaven. Who falls from heaven? That's the devil. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, and he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And this was after, of course, the apostles went out and they started casting demons out. So the devil was losing his power. We see this idea of stars falling to the ground in Revelation 12, 4. His, that's the devil, the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth or to the land. So there's the stars, the demons falling to the land. And by the way, this is where you hear it stated a lot of times that there was a rebellion of angels in heaven and a third of the angels revolted against God. It comes from this passage right here in Revelation 12. I've often wondered, well, you know, this is a vision. Should we really take that as exactly a third of the angels fell? I don't know. But anyway, most people say that, so we'll go with that. But the idea is that the demons are coming to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman, that's Israel, who's about to give birth to the Messiah, so that when she did give birth, he might devour her child, that's Jesus. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth. See the idea of the devil being thrown to earth? And again, remember, earth is land here, 
The Greek word can be translated earth or land. And the angels with him, and the angels of the demons. Now, we're going to see as we go on here that this is obviously talking about the devil. The star might not be so obvious, but other things will prove it to us. We go to verse 2. He, that's the devil, opened the bottomless pit. Now, what's the bottomless pit? The abyss. What's the abyss? <laughs> hell. Okay? This is the bottomless pit. It's hell. Smoke went up out of the pit. What's the common metaphor for hell? It's fire, right? The fires of hell. What does fire produce? Smoke. All right, smoke is coming out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now, I said that this fifth angel that blew the fifth trumpet was heralding the covering of the land of Israel with demons, the demonizing of Israel. Jesus actually talked about that in Matthew 12, 43-45. Now, I'm going to read this passage to you because it's so often taken out of context, especially with people who are dealing with demons. Jesus said, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it, the demon, says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. And returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then off it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that man's last condition is worse than the first. Now, how that is often taken is we think, okay, somebody's sinning, he's real bad, let's say he gets a demon cast out of him, and then he goes back and he starts sinning again or getting involved in demonic activity again, and then seven demons worse are come in because the house is swept clean. He's swept clean by his repentance, but then the demons come in and make it worse because he doesn't fill his empty soul up with more scriptural and godly stuff. And I happen to agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. But that's not what Jesus was talking about here. He said, that's how it will also be with this evil generation. And what he was saying was, is that he had come to Israel, and for three and a half years, he had cast out demons all over Israel. He had cleaned the demons out of Israel, proclaimed the kingdom of God, and what's going to happen? They're going to kill him. And what's going to happen? Seven spirits, of course, seven is a symbol of divine perfection. There's going to be a perfect number of demons coming back into Israel and flooding the place. He says this is how it will be with this evil generation. This is a key phrase here. Whenever Jesus talks about this generation, he is talking about the generation of Jews that killed him. He's not talking about Jews today or in the Middle Ages. He's talking about the generations back then. He used that phrase, I think, eight times or so approximately in Matthew 23 when he was referring to the fact that woe was going to fall on this evil generation. It's almost like a technical term. And so this is what he's talking about. He's saying, you guys are going to end up with more demons in Israel than were there before I got here. So we go now to Revelation 9.3. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the land, and power was given them as the scorpions of the land have power. Now, if you'll think, now remember, we're looking at, in John's mind, in the vision. And it's so easy to get balled up and say, okay, well now let's think about locusts actually coming on the land of Israel. Well, actually locusts did come on the land of Israel periodically, but that's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about demons. Locusts are symbols for demons. And these demons have power as scorpions. Now, Jesus mentioned scorpions referring to demons, did he not? Luke 10, 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and, all, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. So Jesus compared the power of demons to scorpions, also to serpents, snakes. 
So he's obviously talking about demons here, and here John says these locusts have the power of scorpions. That's one more indication that we're talking about the bottomless pit of hell. The star that fell to the earth was the devil. Now these locusts are given a certain amount of power, and they are compared to an army in Joel, chapter 2, verse 25, in a famous passage. Joel says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, the great army that I sent against you. Joel is talking about a human army, and he compares them to locusts. If you think about it, locusts do kind of come in ranks. <laughs> they look like an army, and Joel made a good comparison there. So this is an army, but it's not a physical army. It's an army of demons, as I've just said. So we go now to Revelation 9, 4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the land, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Well, let's talk about the seal of God on their foreheads. Who are the ones that have the seal of God on their foreheads? This is in a previous chapter. Who are they? Christian Jews or Gentiles? Christian Jews. And the symbolic number of these sealed Jewish Christians is what? 144,000. Very good. They're not going to get hurt. And once again, we see that in the midst of judgment, the Christians don't get hurt. They refer to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem in 66 AD who escaped from Jerusalem, went northeast to Pella, and rode out the war without a one of them getting hurt. Now, why are they told not to hurt the grass, the green thing, and the tree? Well, the, the grass and the, and the green stuff, the vegetation and the trees are not hurt because they've already been damaged, if you will, with the first angel. Back in chapter 8, verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the land. So a third of the land was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and the green grass was burned up. And on Wednesday night I gave a quote from Josephus talking about what a disaster the war was for Israel, how the trees actually did get pretty well burned up fairly badly. All right? So now going on to verse 5, and they, that's these locusts, these, this swarm of demons, were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Now, you know a scorpion, right? It's the little spider with the hook on the end. You know, they eat them in China. I don't know why, but they do. <laughs> and the scorpion, when it stings you, it will not kill you. But it's very, very unpleasant. It's uncomfortable, okay? And, the, and so that's why the... the Metaphor is used here because these demons that are coming out on the land, they're not going to destroy the land yet. The land is not going to be destroyed to the bold judgments, the 100% judgments coming up. Now it's just torment. Now the torment is to last for five months. Typically a swarm of locusts when it comes on the land, it's from May to September, which is five months. Now some people say that the five months refers to the last five months of the Jewish war when things were really bad in Jerusalem before it finally fell and got burnt by the Romans. And I'm going to give you a quote by a, an Orthodox Preterist theologian named David Chilton who's, who's basically summarizing Josephus who described what went on just so you get a feel for how bad it was. The entire generation became increasingly demon-possessed. Their progressive national insanity is apparent as one reads through the New Testament. And its, its horrifying final stages are depicted in the pages of Josephus' The Jewish War. The loss of all ability to reason. The frenzied mobs attacking one another. The deluded multitudes following after the most transparently false prophets. The crazed and desperate chase after food. 
the mass murders, executions, and suicides, the fathers slaughtering their own families and the mothers eating their own children, Satan and the host of hell simply swarm through the land of Israel. And actually, he's left out some bad stuff that Josephus says about that siege of Jerusalem. You ought to read Josephus. It's, it's unbelievable what happened. All right, so, so five months, the Jews are going to be tormented before they're destroyed. We go to Revelation 9, 6. And in those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. Now, Steve pointed this out to me the other day, and I thought that was pretty good here. The average person is seeking death. If he wants to seek death, what does he do? He just kills himself, right? Takes a pill, shoots himself, whatever. But these, that was, Jews didn't do that. Jews don't seek death. That's considered a horrible, horrible sin. So these people basically asked to get killed by something else. Kind of a quasi-suicide. It's so, so bad. Now Jesus himself predicted this bad time coming on Jerusalem. In his own words, he was carrying the cross on the Via Dolorosa, going to Golgotha to get crucified. The people of Jerusalem come up to him and they're crying and everything because of the horrors that Jesus was going through. And this is what Jesus told them. Turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, and daughters of Jerusalem just means population of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. So if you tell, ask a mountain to fall on you, what is that the same thing as saying? I want to die because I'm so miserable. I'm so horrible. And Jesus predicted that. He says, weep for yourselves and your children. The Greek word there is not for descendants. It's for children like my son and daughter, not my grandson and great-grandson. And let me just take a little rabbit trail here. When Jesus, when the crowd was saying, saw Jesus getting persecuted, and they said, um, his, his blood be on us and our children. And many people, like through the Middle Ages in the Catholic Church said, see, the Jews are liable for killing Jesus. They killed Jesus, and now every Jew from generation after generation after generation down to the 21st century is liable, is guilty for the death of Jesus. But that's not what they said. They said his his Blood be on us, on our heads, and on our children. That's one generation, which is about 40 years. And so when AD 70 happened and the city of Jerusalem was burnt by the Romans, that was the judgment on that, on that generation, that wicked generation of Jews and their children. And that's it. We don't blame Jews for what happened back then anymore. We blame Italians because the Romans put Jesus up on the cross. And I say that because a lot of times when you teach what I'm teaching the objection comes up, oh, you sound anti-Semitic. No, it was that generation of Jews who killed Jesus, not all generations of Jews. We have to make a distinction. And this idea of mountains falling on the unrepentant apostate Israelites is also mentioned in Revelation 6. That's the sixth seal, the decreation rhetoric of the sun turning to darkness and the blood turning to moon. Then the kings of the earth or the rulers of the land, the rulers of the land of Israel, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So you see here that God is angry and the Lamb is angry and for good reason and the people are going to fear it when they see the judgment coming. All right, now we're going to look at these locusts and 
we will turn now to Revelation 9, 7 through 9. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. Now, one thing when you try to interpret what all this stuff means is we have to be careful and remember, we're not talking about locusts that appear in the real world down here in Israel. We're talking about what John saw in his vision. And I have seen so many people try to say, oh, this is some kind of military equipment and, and you know, and all kinds of wild speculations. No, it's, it's a crazy looking locust that John saw in his dream. Locusts don't look like this. They do look like horses prepared for battle, actually, because Joel and 2.4 said their appearance is like that of horses. They, they march in ranks, if you will. That's okay. But their heads, uh, heads appeared to be crowns like gold. What is a crown a symbol of? Authority. So these locusts have got the authority to go down there and wipe out Israel. Their faces, or torment Israel, I should say, and their faces were like the faces of men. That probably stands for the intelligence of the locusts. They're demons. Demons have intelligence. They're going down there to demonize Israel. But again, a real locust doesn't have a face like a man. This is a visionary locust. They had hair like the hair of women. Now that a lot of times throws you too because you think, oh, hairs of women so soft, so nice, so beautiful, like the shampoo commercials with the hair flowing like that, you know. And we have kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling, but that's not the feeling we're supposed to get here. About <laughs> these locusts, you know. So, so some people speculated that what John saw in his vision was the antenna of the locust, antennae, I guess you'd say, of the locust, and, and the long antennae made it look like hair. I don't think it symbolizes anything. Their teeth, like the teeth of lions, of course, a lion's teeth will grab its prey and rip it to shreds, and that's what's about to happen to Israel. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, which means they were strong. It's hard to get rid of them. The sound of their wings it was like the sound of chariots. And that's probably fairly literal because like Joel said, talking about his human army of locusts, they bound on the tops of the mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots. He's comparing a human army to a, a, an army of locusts. So this is just sort of, how can I say, stage preparation, a, a stage work, just trying to make the vision real. I don't think the symbolism needs to go much beyond the fact is they locusts devour. They destroy just like demons do. Didn't Jesus say the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy? And we're going to see this star that opened up the pit. And that key was given to the, the devil, by the way. It was given to him. God allowed the demons to come out of that pit. The devil does not have sovereign control over when he's going to judge people. Just like the devil told Job. Not, no, I'm sorry. Jesus told the devil when the devil wanted to torment Job. He said, you can torment him all right to test him, but you're not going to kill him. So God is in control of the devil. But these are all demons coming on the land of Israel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sure. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, when we get to the sixth trumpet, we're going to see the Roman armies, but they're motivated and powered by the devil. So you're exactly right. All right. So verse 11, 
They have as king over them the angel of the abyss, the angel of the abyss, that's the, the devil, the star that fell to the earth. The abyss is hell. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. That, the root meaning of that is destruction. In the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The root meaning of that is destruction. And that's the end of the first woe, which is the fifth trumpet. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. That's trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. So now we go to Revelation 9.13. We go to the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, the golden altar has a lot of significance. And before I read you what John is referring to here, it comes from the last chapter. I'm just going to orally remind everybody how this worked. In the temple of God, you've got a 10 by 10 by 10 cubit square that's dark. It's got an ark in the middle. And that's called what? That room is called? Yeah, the most holy place or the holy of holies. And then there's a doorway there in the most holy place to the holy place, which is 10 by 20 by 10. And that doorway had a curtain. And what, was, what altar was put right in that doorway? The golden altar. And what was on that golden altar? Incense, and the incense symbolized what? Prayers of the saints going up. Now, in chapter 8, the angel that was in charge of this golden altar, in the vision, in John's vision, got fire from the altar and did what with the fire? Threw it down down on the land, right. And said, fire, I think it was smoke and blood, which stood for judgment on the land. So what you see here is a picture of smoke going up, prayers to God, Judgment going down. And the idea is imprecatory prayers. You pray to God for justice. Like in the, the souls before the altar in the fifth seal, they were saying, How long, O Lord, before you avenge us? Okay, so that's what's happening here. And this voice, and we don't know exactly who that voice is. It might be the angel that's in charge of this the, of the incense and the fire going down on the earth. I'm going to read that to you just I summarized it, but let me read it again. Revelation 8, 3 through 6. Another angel with a golden incense burner. Now, this angel is different than the sixth angel that's blowing the sixth trumpet. This is the angel in charge of the incense, I'll call him. With a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. That's the golden altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. Now, in the vision, of course, you got God sitting on the throne. In the Old Testament tent, the throne was the tabernacle. In the Holy of Holies. Now remember the vision of the throne room in John's vision reflects that which is in the temple. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, hurled it to the earth or to the land. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake, all of which were symbols of judgment. So again, the idea is judgment. And again, this is a... a harbinger, if you will, of more judgment coming from the sixth angel, the sixth trumpet. So we go to verse 14, Revelation 9, and this voice says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, the four angels there, nobody agrees on who those four angels are, and I don't think we can identify them except this, I call them the four angels who were by the river Euphrates. They're just four extra (laughs) angels that showed up in the vision, all right? Now, why would John in a vision see a river, the river Euphrates? Well, there's a reason for that. 
because he is getting ready to talk about an army that's going to attack Israel from the north. Now you say, why north? If you'll look in the Old Testament and read all these prophecies, I've got a whole string of them in my notes. I don't have time to go through them all. But they talk about judgment coming on Israel from the north. There's a reason for that. Now, I'm going to just give you one example. This is Jeremiah 6.22. This is what the Lord says. Look, an army is coming from a northern land. A great nation will be awakened from the remote regions of the earth. Now, Jeremiah is talking about Babylon coming on Israel in 586 B.C. when Babylon came and wiped out Israel. Okay? But Babylon is not to the north of Israel. Here's Israel. This right here is Babylon. And Jeremiah said that Babylon was going to come from the north. Well, Babylon is due east of Israel. Why did Jeremiah say that Babylon was going to come from the north? It's a simple reason. What is between Babylon and Israel here? This desert is a desert, the Arabian Desert. There's no army in the world that's going to cross that desert and survive. They can't do it. So what they would do, they would go up the Fertile Crescent here, which was fertile. There was canals going through here and crops, food. And they would go up, and they would get right up here somewhere, and they would cross. They had to cross the Euphrates River somewhere, and then they would descend from the north. It's actually more precisely the northeast. They would descend from the north and come and attack Israel. Okay? So that's why the prophets always talk about judgment coming from the north. Okay, so the four angels abound. Let me back up a minute here. I'm still at 914. The four angels. Four stands for the totality of, like, the four corners of the globe, the four corners of the land. Okay? So basically the idea here is that these angels are going to let loose something that's going to come down and wipe out the entire land of Israel. And I'm going to point out to you that it's going to be the armies of the Roman Empire. Because the Romans, in order to protect their eastern frontier, Parthia was right here. It used to be Persia, but at this time, the time of Jesus, it's Parthia. They had to put garrisons here fortified forts on the Euphrates River to keep the Easterners from crossing the Euphrates River and taking Syria, Aram, and Israel, and Anatolia up here, Turkey. So that's where the Romans kept their troops. And when the Jewish war started in 66 AD, Jesseus Florus was the Roman general. He brought his troops up from the north, from the Euphrates River, to come down on Israel. Well, that's what... John is prophesying here. The Romans are coming after you Jews and they're going to wipe you out. We go down to Revelation 9.15 and the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year down to the precise time because God is in charge of when judgment comes. Not the demons, not the Roman armies, but God. And they came down to slay the third part of men. Now, start with third, one-third. Remember, we're on the trumpet judgments, right? This is the sixth trumpet. Trumpet judgments destroy how much of Israel? One-fourth, one-third, or 100%? One-third, right? So that's all that means. It doesn't mean you're supposed to count up all the people that the Romans killed and then divide it by three and get a precise number. That's not what the point is. It's symbolic of progressive judgments. Now, the King James has a third of men, and I take that to mean the men in Israel. However, there are many other translations who don't translate that word men. The Greek word is anthropoi. They translate it the human race. And to show you how the translation can mess your view up or guide your view of how to interpret the book of Revelation, I'll give you an example here. 
This is the Holman Christian Study Bible. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. Now when you hear that, a third of the human race, what do you think? The whole world, judgment falls. It's a, it has to be a nuclear catastrophe, right? And then you watch all the movies, The Left Behind, and Hal Lindsey, and you got the whole picture, right? Do you know that the New American Standard translates that as mankind, a third of mankind, anthropoi? I think it was 544 times anthropoi appears in the New Testament. The New American Standard translates it just like the King James does here as men in all but five cases, and three of them are right in this passage right around here. So the biases of the translators can affect the way we look at it. So you've got to remember, we've got to go to the Greek eventually to know what, to, to understand what's going on here. Likewise, the land, if you say the fire was hurled on the earth, what do you think? Oh, nuclear fire all over the globe. But if it's nuclear, if it's fire hurled to the land, the land of Israel, that's a common way of saying Israel. Well, that makes a big difference in how you interpret the book of Revelation. And that word for land, gay, is perfectly, it is perfectly legitimate to translate it as land. And in fact, many times the futurist translations that we all use translate it as land in other contexts easy to prove if you get a lexicon. All right, so now we go to verse 16. We're going to see what the four angels loosed. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, this is the famous 200 million man army. When I was young, my two dispensationalist grandmothers would always regale me with stories of the Chinese army coming to Europe to wipe out, to take over the world. And of course, we were all scared of China back then. They were going to take over the world. I guess we should have been because they're about to. <laughs> take over the world now but the, the reasoning was is we take that literally 200 million we take it literally and there's only one army in the world that, well, only one country in the world that had enough people to make an army that big that was China well it turns out that 200 million is a precise literal translation, translation of the Greek phrase which is myriad of myriads which is not 200 million it's just a whole heap of, a whole bunch. Here's uh, English Standard Version. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And when you read it that way, what does it sound like? It's just a whole lot of. You don't sit there and, and get your calculator out and punch the numbers in to figure out exactly how big the Roman army is going to be, or the army is going to be. You don't do that. So it's a symbol of a whole lot of troops coming into Israel. Now, we're going to look at these troops that are coming over the Euphrates River. And you can get lost in the details here real quick. So I'm going to give you a summary before I read it. You've got horsemen coming over the river. And there's well, you've got horses coming over the river. And you've got horsemen riding on the horses. All right. You've got to distinguish those two things, the horses and the horsemen. There's a color scheme, red, blue, and yellow. Red, blue, and yellow. I've got it here on the PowerPoint. It says red, blue, and yellow. Red, blue, and yellow. You see it show up three times there in those three verses. Now, we'll take the horsemen first. They had breastplates, and they look just like regular horsemen. There's nothing strange in the vision about that. And the breastplates were red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, according to my translation here. Well, hyacinth blue. Hyacinth is a... Is a it can either be a dark purplish blue stone or herb of some sort. So it's basically a deep dark blue. And you know sulfur yellow. Now some translations translate that as brimstone. Sulfur is brimstone. 
And the reason for that is, is when a volcano erupts, what do you see? Well, you see fire, that's the red. You see smoke, that's the blue. And then at the top of the volcano, there's sulfur that comes out of the mouth of the volcano. And the sulfur ends up being deposited around the brim of the volcano, so they call it brimstone. So basically what we're seeing here is symbols of judgment. Fire, of course, that's obvious judgment. Smoke accompanies fire, so that's part of the fire, so that's judgment. And then the brimstone is associated with judgment, too. In fact, even in the English language, have you, you know, he's a fundamentalist preacher. He preaches fire and brimstone. You know what that means, right? Comes from Revelation 19.20, we see this in the second half of the verse. Both of them, that's the sea beast, Rome, and the land beast, Israel, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So this is a standard... This is standard symbolism. Red is judgment. Blue is the smoke that accompanies the fire. So that's judgment. And the, the yellow brimstone is judgment too because when a volcano erupts, there's judgment. All right? So that's the general idea. So let's get a little bit more particular. you got the breastplates that have those three colors. And now let's look at the horses. The heads of the horses were lion's heads. So these are not your ordinary horses, folks. This is a visionary horse that John had saw in his vision. The horse had a lion head, so you take, take away the horse head, put a lion. His tail was a snake, and so the snake had a head that was pointed to the rear. So you look at this horse, you got a lion going frontwards and a, a head. If the horse ever backed up, you'd have a head on the snake going backwards, right? Now what does a lion's mouth do? If it ever gets a hold of you, what does it do? It's going to tear you up, right? It's going to rip you to shreds. Mouth stands for strength. A snake's head, when, when a snake bites you, what does it do? Right. So all this is symbolic of evil, judgment that's coming on the land of Israel. And the, mouth, the lion's mouth, he was breathing fire, smoke, and sulfur. Again, that's just a symbol of judgment coming out of the, mouth, the lion's mouth. And then there were three plagues that came because of the, uh, the smoke from the lion's mouth. Fire, smoke, and sulfur. Again, it all stands for judgment. Power of the horses, verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. That's because the mouth of the horse was the mouth of a lion, and that tears. And in their tails, because the tail had a head on the end, a snake's head, which resembles snakes, which of course are symbolic typically of demons. These are demonic type horses that are carrying these soldiers as they inflict injury with them. Again, you can get balled up in the details worrying about what does this vision look like and how am I going to see something like that in Israel? That's not what was meant. It's just supposed to be symbolic of judgment coming on Israel. Now, let's go to Revelation 9, 20 through 21. The rest of men, I'm going to use the King James here, the rest of men who were not killed by these plagues, well, this is the New American Standard, but the New American Standard says the rest of mankind, but really it should be the rest of men who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so it's not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorcerers, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now, this describes apostate Israel perfectly. But you notice, despite how bad the judgment was, they didn't repent. So, since they didn't repent, after six one-third judgments with trumpets, what comes next? The bold judgments. That's 100%. So again, God gives them a chance to repent. They don't repent. And when God says, okay, you're not going to repent, it's going to get worse. Here's Josephus. 
what he says about the Jews during this time. Thus were the miserable people beguiled by these charlatans and false messengers of God while they disregarded and disbelieved the unmistakable portents that foreshadowed the coming desolation. But as though thunderstruck, blind, senseless, paid no heed to the clear warnings of God. Now Josephus was not a Christian. He never read the book of Revelation. But he described exactly what happened. They did not repent. All right, I might have to, I'm going to skip through the, they didn't repent of their demons, worshiping demons. They didn't repent of their murders. They murdered Jesus. They didn't repent of their sorceries. It's interesting, let me get down to sorceries. In Revelation 18, John says this, The light of a lamp will never shine in you again, shine in Israel again. And the voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. The Jews had a demonic religion. That's what sorcery is. The famous Christian historian Trolch said that about 20% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. They were the diaspora. They were all over Turkey, all over everywhere. And they were preaching that Jesus was not the Messiah. And they were taking Christians and accusing them of blasphemy, putting them before synagogue courts and so forth. And also they had a lot of trade with all of the ancient Near Eastern world, the Roman Empire. They were trade. In fact, it's listed in Revelation 18, all the stuff that they were trading with. So the Jews were everywhere passing out their demonic religion. Now, I've got two minutes. I think what I'm going to do here is take a, talk about their immorality. Immorality, that's sexual immorality, is a symbol of idolatry in the Old Testament because Israel was married to Yahweh, but then she whored after other gods, and so immorality was used to show sexual immorality. Well, if we look at Revelation 17, verse 4, we see the whore of Babylon. When we get there, we'll know that the whore of Babylon stands for apostate Israel. The whore was clothed in purple and scarlet, she is a parody of the Jewish high priest who was also clothed in purple and scarlet. His robes and such were purple and scarlet. She was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. The Jewish high priest had 12 precious stones on his breastplate. She's a, a fake imitation of the true. She had in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, that stands for idolatry, and of the unclean things of her immorality, which means her She's called a whore, so it's sexual immorality, but the symbol stands for spiritual immorality. The high priest had a gold cup full of wine that he would pour out on the sacrifices. So she is a parody of Israel, and she's become evil. So Israel has become an evil thing. She did not repent of her immorality. Now, what are some applications from this? This is my idea, which you can agree with or disagree with, but the first I thought of was turn or burn. You know, I grew up in South Carolina where Bob Jones University is, and they used to love people that were influenced by Bob Jones University, but always say, turn or burn. And, of course, all those good Christians would say, ah, we don't want to be associated with that. Well, let me tell you something. Isn't that what this is about? God is putting threatening judgment on the land of Israel, and he's saying, you better turn or you're going to be destroyed. That means turn or burn. Now, let's make an application to the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. The United Fascist States of America, which is where we're heading very, very quickly. Now, do you think that maybe we're under the judgment of God? And do you think that maybe we ought to repent? And if we don't, some bad things are going to happen? Yeah, I think so. Second application, God is a God of love. He's a God of love and a God of wrath. 
You cannot emphasize one aspect of God's attributes over another. In the Middle Ages, it was God's wrath. It's constantly emphasized. You never heard about the love of God in the Middle Ages. We don't live in the Middle Ages. Now we live in what I call wussy pussy evangelical Christianity. You know, God's a, he's an old grandfather up in the sky on a sofa, and he's got a little basket, a little bowl of bonbons, and he said, oh, there's my child. I'll throw him a little present here. And, and, the, and, the, and the children go up and say, oh, hi, Daddy. And then Rob Bell prints a book called Bell's Hell, not Bell's Hell, Love Wins, excuse me. <laughs> I actually knew that. I was just making a joke. <laughs> love wins, and there's no hell because no God is a loving God. He would never put anybody in hell. Folks, read the Bible. If you, if you say that there's no hell, you might as well say Jesus Christ is a liar and the Word of God is trash. That's what you might as well say. And we've got that stuff everywhere. The Shack, did you ever read that book? Good. <laughs> Third application, God restrains, restrains punishment until the hour, day, week, and month of His choosing, like He did on the sixth trumpet. When He decides He's going to judge, He's going to judge. We don't have any business of saying, well, you know, this is a judgment of God, 9-11 is a judgment of God. I don't know when, I don't know where. All I know is, is that God is a God of wrath as well as love. He loves His children. That's why He seals us. He's not going to destroy us. We are not destined for wrath. But the people who hurt His church, who hurt His bride. I mean, if you're married and somebody comes up to your bride and tries to hurt her, what do you do? Do you say, well, I've got to love that person that's raping my wife? You don't do that, do you? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're finished. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.